0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, March 18th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We have a, um, before we begin, we have a new radio schedule on our streams when we're not doing live programming. There will be something different every night on each of the four streams. It, it's, of course, the same podcasts, but they are, we have them cycling through more rapidly and playing something different every night. We're going to try to change up the time slots, at least certain slots at a time with greater frequency. Today we're going to present the fifth part of our series on Paul's epistle to the Colossians. It's subtitled, Bad Words and Filthy Communications. Thankfully, bad words and filthy communications are not all we have to discuss this evening. However, we seem to constantly be confronted with what I can only call word Pharisees, and they certainly need to be addressed. In our recent discussions of Colossians chapter 2, we had seen Paul of Tarsus assert that because the children of Israel were freed from the ordinances of the law by the sacrifice of Christ, the Christians should not seek to judge one another based on those ordinances. Therefore, Paul said, no one must judge you in food and in drink, or in respect of feast, or new moon, or of the Sabbaths. Of course, Paul was not telling Christians to disregard the Sabbaths and the feasts, which he had advised them elsewhere to observe. Rather, he must have meant only that no one should judge them as to how they observed those things. And especially because, at Paul's time, And as we see in the ministry of Christ, a lot of the commandments of man were layered on top of the law of God in in regard to those observations. Paul then advised his readers to let no one find you unworthy of reward, where he must have been referring to earthly rewards, making reference to those who would tell them that one should not hold, one should not taste, nor should one touch things which are all for corruption in their misuse. Paul is talking about things that may be used, but they are all for corruption in their misuse, as we have explained the fault of the King James Version translation in that phrase in our presentation last week. Things which are all for corruption in their misuse according to the commands and instructions of man. We shouldn't abide by those who tell us that we can't hold certain things or taste certain things or even touch certain things according to the commands and instructions of men. So we see that Christians should not seek to bar their brethren from anything which may give them refreshment or relief, even though that particular substance may be abused. Discussing this, we made examples of substances such as wine, marijuana, and even poppy, things which certainly can be abused, but which also have many legitimate uses. Conceding to the idea that the potential for abuse of a substance is a good reason to proscribe the use of the substance actually isolates us from many of the wonderful and important resources provided for our use by the creation of God. And in the long run, it often causes us much more harm than good. Making these points, Paul's epistle Seems to have actually been addressing three distinct groups first there are the legalists who would impose upon us the commands and instructions of men then there are the idolaters for which reason paul admonished those being willing with humiliation, even in the worship of the messengers, stepping into the things which one sees, heedlessly inflated by the mind of one's flesh. Then lastly, there are the ascetics, who hold wisdom in will-worship and disregard of the body, rather than appreciating those things which God has provided for the satisfaction of the flesh. This is how we have interpreted the rather enigmatic language which Paul had used in Colossians chapter 2. Although it may be apparent that these various aspects of essentially anti-Christian behavior which Paul had addressed were not so distinct from one another as we have portrayed them here. However, the summary point is this. Christians altogether should seek to follow Christ, who is the head of the body of which Paul speaks. And therefore, they should not seek to rule over one another making their own laws in order to compel or to proscribe things which the law of Yahweh in Christ does not compel or proscribe. Doing so, they would make the word of God of none effect. Yahweh God made the earth and everything in it, and he told us what things we should not consume. The pride of men cannot do better than the Word of God. Once we think that we have the right to ban a substance, we embark down a path of oppression because sophistic arguments can convince us to ban many substances which may otherwise be beneficial in many ways. Once we have the right to proscribe a word, even If we detest that word, we step onto the slippery slope of controlling one another's speech in ways that the word of God does not advise. That too will be a part of our discussion this evening as we present Colossians chapter 3. this chapter begins where Paul says therefore if you are raised together with Christ it is conclusion to the things that he said in Colossians chapter 2 concerning the ordinances and commandments of men the law from which Yahshua Christ had actually freed the children of Israel the ordinances in the law and the feast and the Sabbaths and and the, the regulations, both of men and the regulations which we saw in the works of the law in the Old Testament, all of which we, we as Christians should be free from. Therefore, if you are raised together with Christ, you seek the things above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. Mind the things above, not the things upon the earth. In chapter 4 of his Epistle to the Galatians, Paul had mentioned that the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Comparing those who would find righteousness in the works of the law, in the rituals and ceremonial ordinances, which Paul describes here in Colossians chapter 2 as stepping into the things which one sees. As opposed to those who seek justification in Christ, the Judaizers would have you seek justification in the works of the law, in the rituals and the ceremonial ordinances. Modern day Judaizers, likewise, would have you seek justification in those... Catholic sacraments that we see, the Catholic priests dispense, or in the baptism and other rituals that we see Protestants dispense. It's all the same. It's all one is a slightly different form of the other. It's all seeking justification in the works of the hands of men rather than seeking justification in Christ. In the analogy Paul had made there in Galatians chapter 4, he said that he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Minding the things above, we look to Christ for our law as well as our justification. And we do not persecute one another according to the commands and instructions of man. You should not censor a brother unless you find a specific law of God that gives you good reason to. You have died. Your life has been hidden with Christ by Yahweh. When Christ, your life, is manifested, then you will also be manifested with him in honor. You know, there's a, um, I didn't write it into my notes here. But there's a sort of humanist strain among identity Christians that is absolutely repulsive to me because it claims that, oh, eternal life is in your descendants. You live through your descendants. These people may as well be Jews. They're basically doubting the eternal nature of the Spirit of God. ...and the eternal life that God has promised to man through that spirit. These people are materialists. They reject the ability of God to transcend his creation... ...and to create the Adamic man in that same manner to transcend his creation. They reject that power of God in this idea that we have eternal life only through our descendants. That's not what the scripture says. In Hebrews chapter 9, Paul explained, from verse 26 in reference to Christ, For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. If eternal life was only in your descendants, how could you be judged after you die? So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Many Christians who are caught up in a materialist worldview doubt the little literal interpretation of the promises of the coming manifestation of Christ. However, the scripture insists that such a manifestation shall indeed occur. In that manner, as Paul had written in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. So we may read from Psalm 49, from verse 12. Nevertheless, man, being in honor, abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright which is a reference to those who are living after a man dies, shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. So Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So, Paul says here that our life is hidden with Christ, as all of the Adamic race have a promise of eternal life. Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, speaking of the entire race of the children of Adam. Therefore, because Christians are assured of these promises of life through Christ, they should voluntarily abandon the sins of the world, as Paul next encourages them to do in verse 5. Therefore, make as dead these members which are upon the earth, some manuscripts have, your members, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry, evil is only in there once, I'm sorry, I skipped over the portion of my notes that said that the 3rd century papyrus, P46, wants that word evil, and just has desire, These are some of the real sins committed by the children of Israel when they committed idolatry and went after strange gods, as it is described in the Old Testament. So the word of Yahweh says in Hosea, that in chapter 5, that I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hid from me. For now, O Ephraim, thou committest whoredom, and Israel is defiled and skipping a few verses. We find out why. They have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. Now a month shall devour them in their portions. Yahweh is the God of Israel. Here we see that the result of whoredom or fornication is to beget strange children. Once again today, we observe that Christians are begetting strange children. In rather large numbers, they are committing fornication. Here in Colossians, Paul is preaching the very same message which he had transmitted to the Romans. In chapter 6 of that epistle, where he had made a lengthy analogy concerning sin and death. And he wrote, or are you ignorant? that as long as we are immersed in Christ Yahshua, into his death we are immersed. So we were buried with him through immersion into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the honor of the Father, so then we in newness of life should walk. Therefore, if united we have become in the likeness of his death, then also shall we be of his resurrection." Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body would be left void of sin, that no longer are we in bondage to sin. Therefore, dying, one is judged worthy apart from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also will live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer lords over him. Therefore, when he died, the sin upon all died, but because he lives, he lives to Yahweh. In that manner, you also consider yourselves to be dead in sin, but living to Yahweh in Christ Yeshua. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, for which to submit to its desires. Neither should you surrender your members as instruments of wrongdoing in sin. But present yourselves to Yahweh as the living from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to Yahweh. All of the children of Israel were indeed dead in their sin, at least allegorically. As we read in Hosea chapter 13, that when Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel, but when he offended in Baal, he died when Ephraim spoke trembling, that's a mark of humility. Being humble, Ephraim was submitting himself to God. Doing so, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, when he went after those strange gods and begot strange children, he died. Then later, in that same chapter of Hosea, we read of Ephraim in captivity, in verse 12 of Hosea chapter 13. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up, his sin is hid. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children, meaning to the place that the children of Israel were taken by the Assyrians in captivity. That's called the place of the breaking forth of children. Because the children of Israel were promised that they would multiply greatly and that happened in their captivity. And Yahweh says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, because they were in that state of sin. They no longer had their God. They were put off from their God and had no hope of life. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. So Yahweh incarnate became the Redeemer of Israel setting them free from the ordinances of the law so that they would have no more guilt, as Paul explained here in Colossians chapter 2 and at greater length in Romans chapter 7. Here in Colossians 3, addressing our original text, Therefore, make as dead these members, in the better, older manuscripts, these members upon the earth. The Greek word melos is a member here, as usually it is used to describe a part of the body, since it is literally a limb, such as an arm or a leg. But the word was also used to describe an element of a thing, such as an element of a song or a play. However, the analogy which Paul seems to be making here is that the propensity for certain sins is a natural part of the fleshly being, which Christians should strive to overcome by the spirit within. Likewise, Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6 that I speak after the manner of men, Because of the infirmity of your flesh, for as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. Then later in Romans chapter 7 he wrote, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And he goes on to explain that the spiritual man overcomes the weakness of the flesh by acknowledging that the law of God is good. So the the law is spiritual in the sense that those who have the Spirit of God have the capacity within them to follow the law. The law, as Yahweh had promised in Jeremiah, is written in their hearts so Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, But the natural man, meaning the fleshly man, receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For the same reason the apostle John wrote in his first epistle, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not, and if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins. As we had discussed at length presenting Romans chapter 6 here a couple of years ago, the purpose of this life is so that the Adamic man may learn the consequences of sin. Therefore, one's true life is hid with Christ, as Paul says here, and it will be made manifest when Christ is made manifest. For that, Christians have hope. Fornication is the pursuit of strange flesh, of different flesh, as we have just seen the equivalent Hebrew word used in Hosea chapter 5, and as the word is defined by Jude. And Paul also used it in the context of race mixing in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's only through race mixing that one begets strange children. But the meaning of the word also includes prostitution and other forms of illicit sexual relations. All forms of fornication should be shunned by Christians. Uncleanness, one of the other elements that Christians should put away, uncleanness should be measured by the laws of God. And where Peter exclaims, that he had never eaten anything common or unclean. Yahweh said in response that Peter should not consider common what Yahweh had cleansed. It is more evident in Scripture that there are many things which Yahweh had not cleansed, and Christians should continue to abstain from those unclean things. Yahweh did not die to cleanse asses, pigs, and monkeys. The word pathos here was used by the Greeks to describe things good or bad, suffering or pleasure. Here we understand it to mean sexual pleasure, the passions of the emotions which are properly remedied through lawful marriage as Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The phrase evil desire, and we noted that one papyri wants the word for evil. Evil desire almost seems to be redundant when placed between passion or pathos and the word for covetousness. Perhaps Paul is being emphatic, but there are evil desires outside of passion. And covetousness. Here, Paul identifies covetousness as idolatry, and it is certainly a form of idolatry when men put personal gain, covetousness, greed above the interests of their brethren and their community. That's a form of idolatry. You disregard your kin so that you could have a bigger house and more land and $100,000 sports cars and things like that. And yeah, that covetousness is basically idolatry. That's a huge hurdle, even for identity Christians to understand. Verse 6, because of these things, fornication, passion, covetousness, Because of these things, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience, among whom you also once walked when you had lived in these things. Of course, the ancient Greeks didn't covet sports cars. I'm sure they had their equivalents. The 3rd century papyrus and the Codex Vaticanus wants the phrase, upon the sons of disobedience, which certainly seems to be a gloss, considering the statement in verse 7, among whom you also once walked. The majority text and the Codex Vaticanus Grecus from the 6th century want the words when you had lived in these things, and instead have when you had lived among them, which would direct the statement back to the sons of disobedience, and that explains the variation found in the King James Bible compared to the Christoginian New Testament. Paul had written similarly in Ephesians chapter 2, an epistle written only shortly before this one, And he said, and you being dead in transgressions and in your errors, assuming that they had put away these members upon the earth that he speaks of here, in which you had at one time walked... In accordance with the age of this society, or this world, if you will, in accordance with the ruler of the office of the air, the spirit that is now operating within the sons of disobedience, among whom we also had all at one time conducted ourselves in the desires of our flesh, acting out the wills of the flesh and of the thoughts, and we were by nature, Children of wrath, even like the others. But Yahweh, being rich in compassion, because of that great love of his, with which he has loved us, and we being dead in transgressions, are made alive with the anointed. In favor are you being preserved. And are raised together and are seated together in the heavenly places with Christ Yahshua. Our life is hid with Christ. In order that he would exhibit in the coming ages we would be raised together for the exhibition in the coming ages. The surpassing riches of his favor in kindness to us among the number of Yahshua Christ. So this chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, and Romans chapter 6, all enhance and clarify one another. And we can understand what Paul is saying, reading all three of them. And Romans chapter 6 and 7, not merely 6. There are children of disobedience, children of wrath whom the Apostle Peter describes as having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin, they don't have the Spirit of God. Beguiling unstable souls, a heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children. And Peter also informs us that these are as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So they have no share in the promises of Christ, and because they cannot cease from sin, they have no opportunity for repentance. However, Paul also warned warned the Ephesians in chapter 5 of his epistle to them, and speaking of the same sins which he warns against here, That this is known by you, that any fornicator, or unclean, or greedy person, who is an idolater, and we see once again that covetousness is a form of idolatry, has no inheritance in the kingdom of the anointed and of Yahweh. No one must deceive you with empty words. For on account of these things, the wrath of Yahweh comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, you must not be partakers with them, meaning that there are particular sons of disobedience which have no hope for repentance, just as Peter explained. For you were once darkness, but are now light in the prince. Walk as children of light. Therefore, the phrase, sons of disobedience, refers to a particular sort of people. But just as much to Israelites, who are disaffected from their God, and caught up in the sins of the world, as it does to those of the other races which have not God, which are natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. Engaging in these sins, in this world even the children of Israel can expect to be punished along with those of the children of wrath. Therefore, we see the plea in Revelation chapter 5. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. If we don't come out, we will suffer the same punishments as the children of wrath. Paul continues his admonishment against sin. And now you should also put off all these things, wrath, anger, malice, blasphemy, abusive language from out of your mouth. And the King James Version in that place has filthy communication from out of your mouth. We'll start with the Greek word orgei which is translated wrath here. I believe the King James Version has wrath and anger reversed from the Christian New Testament. The words are very close synonyms. The Greek word orge is a natural impulse or propension. It's the word that in modern times we've gotten orgy from and it's a misuse of that word. Natural impulse or propension one's temper or temperament disposition or nature and in a secondary sense it was used to describe passion anger or wrath according to Liddell and Scott the verb from which it is derived is ordeo meaning to swell with moisture and then a person's to wax wanton and then generally to be eager or ready or to be excited. In contrast, the word filmus translated as anger here. Filmus describes the soul or spirit or life of a man, like the Latin word anima, and also the mind, temper, or will. According to Liddell and Scott, the word came to be used of anger or wrath as it described the heart of man as being the seat of anger. So in the sense in which they are used here the two words seem to be synonyms but orge seems to refer more specifically to anger in excitement while filmists may refer to a more calculated anger stemming from the will of man rather than merely from an excited rage. The Greek word, aheskrologia, Strong's number 148. aheskrologia is filthy communication in the King James Version, and it is defined by Liddell and Scott as foul language, or obscenity, or abuse. Discussing Colossians chapter 2, we describe certain aspects of legalism, which were also identified with Phariseeism, which was, I'm sorry. There are also many word Pharisees who cite Paul's statement here in order to justify their condemnation of men merely for using particular words. And here's the important point regardless of the context in which those words are used. But words by themselves are not malignant, and even so-called bad words may not be attractive, but they are nevertheless harmless, and harmless by themselves, and one must not condemn one's fellows for the mere use of such words. There are no forbidden words in Scripture, but only evil thoughts, which should be forbidden because they are evil, and when they are acted on, we pray that the punishment of God comes upon the actors." A word, whether seemly or unseemly, merely represents an object or an idea. If one uses a particular word, which is considered a bad word, the person who condemns that word, but then uses a euphemism instead, is nevertheless representing the same object or idea. So how is that person not a pharisaical hypocrite? For example, and I'm going to use only one vulgar example, and I could make a different vulgar example just as easily for every bad word. A man may say, I was walking down a street and stepped in a pile of shit and that man may be condemned by someone who insists that he must use such a word as poop or dung instead. But how is it not hypocrisy to use a different word which describes the same object while condemning a man for using the synonym? It certainly is hypocrisy for judging one's brother unrighteously, and doing the same thing which you have judged under the pretense of a euphemism. I must ask this, where is the list of bad words and acceptable euphemisms in scripture? There is none, so in essence you are condemning a brother according to the commands and instructions of men. We could make a similar example for every so-called bad word. In essence, none of them are bad by themselves, even if they typically represent things that are unseemly. And just because each of those unseemly things can be expressed with nicer language, that would not make them seemly. The seemingly nicer language is merely specious. Accidentally stepping into a pile of excrement is every bit as horrible as stepping into a pile of shit. Many of my listeners may wonder why this is belabored as we discussed it at even greater length, presenting Ephesians 4.49 here some months ago, where Paul had said, you must not let any corrupt word go out of your mouth. That word logos is thought, any corrupt thought. But if anything good is of use for building, that would give delight to those listening. And of course, I would agree with Paul. But there is much more that constitutes corrupt communication than simply a word, than merely an unseemly word. Corrupt communications communications are lies and blasphemies, indignation, wrath, and malice against either our God or our brethren. But all of those things can be accomplished with language which is imagined to be either good or bad. You could use the most eloquent language and say the most horrible things. Yes, you can. To me at least, it is important that we understand this. We must distinguish real sin from the mere perceptions of good and evil which exist in the wider society. Do you agree with a sodomite or with a fornicator who admonishes someone for using a so-called bad word while the society insists that you should accept sodomites and fornicators? The society expects you to accept everyone who acts nice and reject everyone who does not act nice. Well, let me tell you something, Miss Manners, and Deer Abbey were both Jews when over the course of the last century modern western society was successfully undermined by the enemies of Christ those enemies were able to exploit the false sense of morality which was upheld by societal standards founded on the precepts of men and not truly founded upon the laws of Yahweh our God. For example, it was easy in the 1960s for Jewish comics to captivate teenagers by using so-called bad words that were artificially forbidden by society. Once they captivated the youth by undermining the pretenses of piety, they were able to undermine the perception of Christianity upheld by the society. It is possible that if children were taught the reality of life and nature in plain language, perhaps the Victorian house of cards may not have come tumbling down. When we found Our worldview and our morality on the laws of our God as well as a proper sense of our identity, they are unshakable and they cannot be undermined. The Jews were able to easily undermine our society because false values of right and wrong cannot stand. Only Yahweh's values of right and wrong stand in the end, and that is what Christians should endeavor to live by. On the other hand, the phrase rendered here as abusive language may just as well have been rendered shameful language. And while there are no words which are bad by themselves, there certainly is shameful language which Christians should avoid. As Paul informs us in Ephesians chapter 5, among such language is ribaldry, which includes dirty jokes, allusions to sexual acts, jesting, in reference to sexual practices or certain bodily functions. These things are sinful because they promote sinful acts, and emanating from the mouth, they are certainly a sign of greater spiritual troubles in the person who utters them. And of that, there should be no doubt. For that reason, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, But fornication and all uncleanness or greediness you should not even specify among you, just as is suitable with saints. And abusiveness and foolish speaking or ribaldry, these things are not fitting, but thanksgiving instead. So, when a particular word is used, which we may dislike... The context must be assessed before criticism is dispensed or before a brother is wrongly judged. As our judge has informed us, we ourselves will be measured by the same measure with which we judged our brethren. Christians should not seek to imitate the Pharisees, who cared more for the appearance of righteousness than for righteousness itself. From Isaiah chapter 29, For the terrible one is brought to naught, and the scorner is consumed, and all that watch for iniquity are cut off, that make a man an offender for a word and lay a snare for him that reproves in the gate and turn aside the just for a thing of naught, like oh you said a bad word you can't be a Christian I've heard that I've heard that from hypocrites Christian should look upon those using certain words with the same judgment that they should look upon those who drink a certain amount of wine. And I'm having tea tonight with the podcast, by the way. If one uses something with moderation, then what one uses should be overlooked by one's brethren. Often, in the mind of the speaker, the expletive fits the situation better than the euphemism, and in those cases we should not condemn the man who chooses the expletive. There is such a thing as too much wine, and in turn there are limits to the extent that just about anything else should be used as well. If you can do without something, That is good, and you may be a better person for it, but not necessarily a better Christian. You will not have justification merely due to your abstinence. So you should probably not seek to justify yourself. Verse 9. Do not lie to one another putting off from yourselves the old man with his practices of course lies are truly shameful communications especially when they are created to approve of or even promote things which are truly evil in chapter four of his epistle to the ephesians paul had described the many good gifts granted by god for the ministry of the gospel For the purpose that we all would attain to the unity of the faith and of the acknowledgement of the Son of Yahweh at man perfected at the measure of the stature of the fullness of the anointed in order that we would be infants no longer, being tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men. In villainy, for the sake of the systematizing of deception. I always trip over that word. But speaking the truth with love, we may increase all things for he who is the head, the Christ. Christians have an obligation to speak truthfully to one another at all times, regardless of the potential for offended egos and hurt feelings. Speaking the truth with love, we hope to help our brethren overcome the systematizing of deception engineered within the larger society. And Paul continues, speaking about putting off from ourselves the old man with his practices, the pagan idolatry and the sexual immorality of the children of Israel in their rebellion from God. And putting on the new, which is being renewed in knowledge, in accordance with the image of he having created him. And here, once again, we see what lies they are to which Paul is referring, just as he had explained in Ephesians, the ancient society of the children of Israel, had neglected the knowledge of God. And we read in Malachi that my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And thou shalt be no priest to me seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children. One of our favorite passages is from the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2. For God created man to be immortal, and made him to be an image of his own eternity. But if Yahweh God is in essence a spirit, then the image of God is spiritual and that part of man created in his image is the spiritual nature of man and not merely the fleshly. And Paul had explained the divergent desires of the spiritual and the fleshly in Romans chapter 7. The law of God being spiritual as Paul had also explained it is therefore an expression of God and the spiritual man should seek to conform himself to the law, laying aside the sins of the flesh. For that reason, Joshua Christ had said that if a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. And he also said, He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me shall be loved of my father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him, as it is recorded in John chapters 14 and 15. The calling of Christ was a call for the scattered children of Israel to return to Yahweh their God in obedience. So the word of Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 43, as the scattering of Israel was commencing, But now, thus saith Yahweh, that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned neither shall the flame kindle upon me. And then the Apostle Peter writes in his first epistle, as the reconciliation of those same Israelites to Christ commences over 700 years later, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Likewise, Paul had written to the Romans concerning that same obedience. For your obedience is come abroad unto all men. I am glad, therefore, on your behalf, but yet, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning each. The same message which Paul gives here, that it is necessary for Christians to follow the spiritual nature and to seek the knowledge of God, for which their ancestors were put off, as it is described in Malachi. To seek the knowledge of God in order to have obedience to God rather than the carnal nature, which is disobedient to God. That message was also illustrated by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where in part he wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ and having in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Paul continues by referring to the new man which he has also described elsewhere where one is not Greek and Judean, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but altogether and in all ways anointed. The popular translations follow the King James Version in spite of the Greek. At the end of verse 11, where it says, but Christ is all and in all, a translation which helps to perpetuate the lie of universalism. With that, the wolves can come into the sheepfold if they are nice, and the sheep are made offenders for a word when they get angry with the wolves. Christ is not in all, because, as he told certain of the Jews, but you believe me not, because you are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. And to this, the apostle John had added that every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. So there are some of the universalist all who are not of God and who are not his sheep. So their version of all is a lie. Here Paul is not referring to all of everyone, but only to all within the context of the people which he is addressing, to which he is addressing this epistle. As we have illustrated many times, the term for the anointed, was used by Paul collectively of the entire body of Christian Israel being reconciled to God. Here in Colossians chapter 1, we have seen that Paul is addressing those who were rescued from the authority of darkness, according to the promises made to the Israelites in the Old Testament, who have redemption. Something else which was also promised by God exclusively to Old Testament Israelites and who also have the forgiveness of sins which is also something which can only be applied to those same Old Testament Israelites so Paul can only be referring to all of them as he describes them in every epistle in Romans chapter 4 Paul had explained this at length where he wrote In part. Now, what may we say that our forefather Abraham had found concerning the flesh? For if Abraham from the rituals has been deemed worthy, he has a reason to boast, but not towards Yahweh. Indeed, not through the law is the promise, skipping to verse thirteen, not through the law is the promise to Abraham or to his offspring that he is to be the heir to society, but through righteousness of faith. For if they from of the law are heirs, the faith has been voided and the promise annulled. Why? Because they who were keeping the law in Paul's time were not all Israelites, as he had said in Romans chapter nine. And here he says, For the law results in wrath, so where there is no law, neither is there transgression. But these Colossians required the forgiveness of sins. Here we must pause. In his explanation here in Colossians, Paul says that there is no Greek or Judean, and no circumcision and uncircumcision, because they were both israelite greeks and israelite judeans as paul had told the corinthians in one corinthians chapter 10 that our fathers were all under the cloud And all had passed through the sea, and all up to Moses had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. The history of Flavius Josephus, as well as the first book of Maccabees, established these things to be true, that the Dorian Greeks were indeed descendants of the ancient Israelites. Proceeding with chapter 4 of Romans, from verse 16. Therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, these Judeo-Christians love to say, Oh, the seed. That says seed instead of offspring in the King James Version. Oh, the seed. That's only Christ. Only Christ himself is the seed. Well, that's bullshit. Because if Christ himself is the seed, then Paul is saying here that Paul that, that Christ is of the law, but he's also not of the law. So how could Christ alone be of the law and not of the law? How could there be seed outside of the law and in the faith of Abraham if only Christ is the seed? The seed are all the literal children from Abraham's loins. Christ. Paul is about to explain. Just as it is written, that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing as existing. So all the nations which existed when the promise was made to Abraham are not partakers of the promise because the nations that came from Abraham didn't exist yet when the promise was made to Abraham who contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations according to the declaration, thus your offspring will be, or in the King James Version, thus shall your seed be, many nations, not one individual. As the Dorian Greeks descended from the ancient seafaring Israelites. The Galatians were descended from the Scythians, the progenitors of the Germanic tribes, who had in turn descended from the Israelites of the Assyrian deportations. So Paul had told the Galatians that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, and he has been our tutor for Christ, I'm sorry, the law has been our tutor for Christ in order that from faith we would be deemed righteous. The Galatians being under the law and being put out of the civic life of Israel along with the rest of the people in the Assyrian deportations were children of the faith of Abraham even though they were no longer Within the law, they were no longer keeping the law in Romans chapter four, as Paul explains it there. but the law was still nevertheless their tutor for Christ, because their ancestors were indeed under it for many hundreds of years. Paul was telling them in relation to that same thing, that Yahweh had dispatched his son having been born of a woman, having been subject to law, in order that he would redeem those subject to law, that we would recover the position of sons. If the Galatians were not descended from ancient Israelites, then the law was not their tutor for Christ, and they, never being under the law, could not have ever been redeemed in order to recover anything. So one is not Greek or Judean. Because there were Israelite Greeks being reconciled to God as Christians, and there were Israelite Judeans being reconciled to God as Christians. There is not circumcision and uncircumcision because, as Paul also told the Galatians, in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision avails anything, nor uncircumcision, but faith which works by love. There is not slave or free, because both bondmen and freemen are Christians first, and their position in life is secondary, and counted for naught in the kingdom of heaven. As it frequently says in Deuteronomy, Thou shalt remember that thou was a bondman in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh thy God redeemed thee. There is not barbarian or scythian but only Israelites being called to obedience in Christ among both the Barbarians and the Scythians. In ancient times, the word Barbarian, from the Greek word Barbaros, merely referred to one who did not speak Greek. At the time of Paul, the people who descended from the ancient Israelites known as Phoenicians, dwelt in some of the Mediterranean islands and in Western Europe. And they were considered barbarians because they spoke variants of ancient Hebrew or Phoenician. In Acts chapter 28, describing the aftermath of a shipwreck, Luke had written, And when they were escaped, they knew that the island, the island which the ship landed on, was called Melita. And the barbarous people showed us no little kindness, for they kindled a fire, and received us, every one, because of the present rain and because of the cold." So the people of Malta, which is ancient Melita, were considered barbarians by Luke. However, writing about a hundred years before Luke, Diodorus Siculus says of Melita that it lies about 800 states from Syracuse, and it possesses many harbors which offer exceptional advantages and its inhabitants are blessed in their possessions, for it has artisans skilled in every manner of craft, and the dwellings on the island are worthy of note, being ambitiously constructed with cornices and finished in stucco with unusual workmanship. This island is a colony planted by the Phoenicians, who, as they extended their trade to the western ocean found in it a place of safe retreat since it was well supplied with harbors and lay out in the open sea and this is the reason the inhabitants of this island since they received assistance in many respects through the sea merchants shot up quickly in their manner of living and increased in renown So, the barbarous people of Acts chapter 28 on this small island of Malta were certainly not savages, but were rather sophisticated and civilized. Other civilized people descended from the Israelites would also have been considered barbarians, such as the Parthians, simply because they used a language other than Greek, and in fact, when Flavius Josephus wrote his Wars of the Judeans, he wrote it to the Upper Barbarians, as he called them, which to him was a reference to not only the Parthians, but to the Goths and the Alans and the other tribes of the dispersed Israelites, which he had elsewhere described as being beyond the Euphrates and innumerable in number, hoping to incite them in that same rebellion against Rome in which the Judeans of his own time were embroiled, as he explained in the preface to the book. An examination of the descriptions given throughout all of Paul's epistles as well as an examination of these descriptions which he uses in the ancient histories, show that Paul is not intending to include anyone who is not descended from the ancient Israelites in the language of Colossians 3.11. And if Paul were intent on including non-Israelites, why would he not include one group where no Israelites would be found? Why did he not include one group which was exclusive of those descendants of the ancient Israelites, such as the Egyptians, or the Arabians, or the Ethiopians of his own time? Without such an inclusion, we know that Paul's words were exclusive to that seed of Abraham which he identified in Romans chapter 4 as those nations which had sprung from the loins of Abraham. The glossing over of Paul's illustration here in the acceptance of what is essentially anti-Christian universalism destroys the entire message of the gospel and dispels the grounds for true Christian unity which is the true racial bond of the elect of Yahweh God in Christ. Successfully purloining the identity of the true children of Israel in the early persecutions of the apostolic Christians, the Jews have managed to obscure the foundation for those bonds. As identity Christians, we seek to shine light upon the devil, not for his benefit, but to expose the crime for the benefit of our brethren and lay claim to our rightful inheritance in Christ. But here we must take a digression and offer something for consideration. Promoting universalism, setting the promises of God at naught, and in essence, destroying the elect of God. Did the organized church use any bad words these last 1700 years? If the Universalists could do so much evil with seemingly good language, yet we seek to condemn a good brother for what society tells us is a bad word, then we have a problem. The problem is that many of our notions of right and wrong come from the artificial values of the society and not from God. We have had this problem for a long time and if, if we are ever to conform ourselves to God we must free ourselves of the pretense and vanity of the world. Admitting a nigger into the body of Christ under the pretense that one is neither slave nor free or admitting a sodomite because we should love the sinner those things are representative of filthy communication and the men who promote such things are indeed lying to one another and even to themselves it is much more than filthy to filthy communication than just a bad word there are no bad words only bad thoughts and ideas. Paul continues in verse 12. Therefore you put on as elect of Yahweh, holy and beloved, affections of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, forbearance, being patient with one another and being forgiving to each other. Christians should put on these things because they are the elect of Yahweh. The two surviving epistles of the Apostle Peter were written to those same assemblies of Anatolia which Paul had founded. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, he informed them that they were indeed the elect of God where he wrote, But you are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, So that you should proclaim the virtues from which from out of darkness you have been called into the wonder of his light who at one time were not a people but are now the people of Yahweh those who had not been shown mercy but are now shown mercy. Peter's statements there in verse 10 of that chapter were taken from Hosea chapter 1 and like Hosea Peter was addressing the children of Israel taken into Assyrian captivity when they were not shown mercy, but they were later shown mercy in their reconciliation in Christ. Peter also indicated, as Paul had in Colossians chapter 1, that these ancient Israelites were being rescued from darkness in the message of the gospel. In Isaiah chapter 45 we see similar remarks made to those same descendants of the children of Israel where the word of Yahweh says And I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, Yahweh which call thee by thy name and the God of Israel for Jacob my servant's sake and Israel mine elect I have even called thee by thy name, I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Like God said in Malachi, he would forget their children because they forgot him. God never disposed of his elect, as we may read in Isaiah chapter 41. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend, thou whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called thee from the chief men thereof, and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, I have chosen thee, and not cast thee away. These are the people of Europe whom Paul is addressing and whom Peter also addressed as a chosen race, the true elect of God, and they are Christians and not Jews. And we shall leave off here in the middle of verse 13 and return to discuss the grounds for true Christian unity, which Paul is illustrating here, being patient and forgiving with one another on the basis that... They are indeed the elect of God. But there is no commandment for the sheep to be kind, or forgiving, or have patience, or forbearance with wolves. All the other races can go to heck. Wow, somehow those euphemisms just don't have the same effect. Praise Yahweh, and good night.